bottom, it's time to thank some people who are on our side because we're on their side. You found a new tool, software, Blue Rhythm commissioning software. Robert, I sure have. I think Blue Rhythm is what I've been looking for all these years. Building commissioning can be chaos at the best of times. Most projects I consult on really suffer from poor information management. You know, it's 2019, yet the property and construction industry seems to be firmly stuck in the 20th century paperwork world. I think people mistake emails and PDFs and Microsoft files on their servers and all the different PCs as a digital solution. In reality, it's just unorganized chaos. Do you want to streamline your commissioning process and save time and money? Do you want to go paperless and increase efficiency? Blue Rhythm is a cloud-based software solution built specifically for building commissioning professionals. Blue Rhythm digitizes your custom forms and checklists, allows collaboration across project teams, and automates reporting, leaving you to focus on what matters. Their team help you onboard the test sheets you've developed over the years. You can even send it some in paper, and they will digitize that and put it in the Blue Rhythm system for you. In my opinion, Blue Rhythm pays for itself in time saved on paperwork on a single project. For a demo or to start a free trial, go to bluerhythm.com. That's where rhythm is spelled R-I-T-H-M, like algorithm. BlueRhythm.com. Tell them the Edifice Complex sent you there. In a world where high-performance, zero-defect buildings are hard to find, two men are on a mission to disrupt the status quo. Welcome to the Edifice Complex, the property design and development podcast. Let your hosts, Adam Muggleton and Robert Bean, keep you up with who is innovating and doing great work perspective on the adjacent possible and challenges to the status quo. Welcome to the Edifice Complex. I'm Robert Bean, your co-host and unofficial mediator. Here again with my colleague, official agitator, heavy emphasis on agitator, friend and Yoda, most everything to do with buildings, Mr. Adam Muggleton. Say hello, sir, Yoda. Hello there. I'm looking forward to this. This is about one of my pet things, one of the many things that get me going. So this should be interesting. <laughs> it will be. So today's guest plays in the world of commissioning. It's a favorite subject for Adam and one that taunts him every hour of the day. It's why he looks the way he looks. It's an area that I continually shake my head at as it certainly is an underappreciated element within the world of engineering and construction. Our guest today has a Master of Science in Software Engineering, Bachelor of Science in Applied Management, and Associate of Science degree in Electrical Construction. His score sheet includes 10 years working with Johnson Controls before founding Blue Rhythm Commissioning Management Software, where he remains today as its owner and president. Welcome to the show, Andy. Thank you, gentlemen. Happy to be here. So, Andy Martins, our listener uh, want a synopsis of how and why you entered the industry and then ultimately taking an exit from one of the world's largest uh, control companies to start up your own software business. How'd that happen? Well, I kind of fell into the building construction industry in general early on in, in, in my career. It's really where I started. I came in at the ground level, learned about building systems, building technology, and just the, the process of building and designing a building kind of from the, the ground up. Moved on to some bigger and better things, started working for uh, Johnson Controls, like you said, about you know a decade or so ago. I got involved in some, some big projects, NFL stadiums, mission-critical stuff, hospitals, data centers, and uh, just spent a lot of time working with all the different parties that, that get involved in a construction project like that. Okay, interesting. So I'd, I'd want to zero in before we talk about Blue Rhythm. What was Johnson Controls like? So for me, Johnson's 
all these big firms like Johnson Siemens, you know, Siemens, they're not systems yeah. houses. They're just massive, like, invo-Poland-type companies, right? So what was that like, being a small thing in a big machine? Sure, that, that's a good question. It, to a large extent, you are a bit of a cog in a giant machine. To a certain extent, at least while I was there, there was a lot of decentralization to the with the local markets. So we had a lot of autonomy to sort of develop and, and, and manage and run our projects the way that, that we saw fit. And Johnson Controls also does a lot of other things besides just develop the products. They do, you know, uh, design consulting services, construction management. They do a, they do a whole bunch of things. So I really got to be involved in in various projects, all stages of a project from early design and development phase all the way through, you know, commissioning and turnover to the to the owner and then even beyond that. So it kind of depends on where you're at in the company and, and how you look at things. And there's a lot of pros and there's a lot of cons to, to working in a big company like that. But overall, I think I had a pretty good experience. I mean, the Johnson's Honeywell rivalry fascinates me and the Siemens. Actually, those are the big three for me. Siemens, Honeywell, Johnson's. And they all sort of have their ups and downs, right? So I went when I was a property developer at that phase of my career, I went for a phase of I would rather shoot myself than have Johnson's on a job. <laughs> and, then it, and then five years later, that flipped round. They came out of a new product. But yeah. the thing that really used to get me going was, you know, it, I worked out that what I was going to get on a project was only as good as the technicians they were going to send me and the office that yeah. was servicing me, right? Right. That's so yeah. You're actually, whilst you've got that name, Johnson's Honeywell Siemens, you know, you're actually, it all comes down to the three or four guys that come on site and how good or bad they are, right? That's exactly what I was going to say. There are some locations around the U.S. at least that that really struggled on a consistent basis. And then we had just a rock star team here in Minneapolis. And it was a pleasure working with most of the folks I did for for that time. Yeah. You know what? It's, it's interesting, gentlemen. I often take my uh, students through an exercise and I get them to go back early on in their careers and then I get them to, to look at what happens in five-year increments. So for me, I'm an old guy, right? So I'm going on 40 years I've been in the business, right? So I go back into the 70s, starts 1979, 1980, come up in five-year increments and then I look back in my career and I think about all the changes that went on. And that, Andy, is why I came down off of the high technology ladder because once we've been up to the high tech you know, all the early introductions of wireless controls, software, all that kinds of stuff. When you were someone like myself, it became parasitic on our profit. And it didn't matter. And I just to give you a little bit of background for the listeners. So I ended up selling my company to Danfoss uh, in Denmark back in 2000. And they're over in Europe, of course, a big control company. They compete with Siemens and all the other guys, right? So I know a little bit about controls. So I want to know, Andy, <laughs> well, how do you work? The whole continuum of technology, how did that bite you and where do you stand on it today? Because you must have been bit by it sooner or later. I mean, it had to happen to you. Yeah. Yeah. So I've been in, I've been involved with, with a lot more than just, you know, the, what we all think of as building controls, building automation systems. Even if with my time at JCI, I've got some, a little bit of background with some Cisco networking stuff. And then obviously I've got the, you know, the software engineering degree and I have a software company now. So, but Really, I think what fascinates me about it is I've really always just had a a passion for making things more efficient and making things easier and more fluid and just just better. Whether it's just a, a process or a team or a you know a company, that's just something that's always came naturally to me and something I've always strived for with wherever I'm at. Yeah, and, and that's really what drove my my passion for the building systems. You know, automating things that we can free up 
where we can free up people to do other more productive things. And then that's obviously the goal of most software systems like Blue Rhythm, automate as much of the administrative stuff as we can, let people focus on the things that that they're good at and where they add value. So that's always just been a mindset of mine. We're going to come back to Blue Rhythm, but what I guess I want to get out of you on or answer Mm -hmm. the question is how do you respond to today's building owners or the contractors that are having to service or install or manage these systems about change? You know, the, the way companies, and they all do it, they're always changing their stuff. How do you deal with that change? Because I know in the past, I don't know about you, Adam, but I would get incredibly frustrated by manufacturers changing stuff, you know? And even when they had something that worked, they wanted to mess around with it, right? So how do you how do you address that? To, so let's actually say my building order today, and you're going to come in, you're, and let's just say you're still working for a control company. We're going to come back to Blue Rhythm. You're sitting across the table, and you're going to try and sell me a multi-million dollar control system. I'm going to go, how long is this good for? What's your answer? Five years? <laughs> Yeah, I mean that's a that's a good question, right? So none of us are going to be able to stop change. There's always going to be new innovation and stuff, and there's always going to be companies and individuals that are pushing the latest changes, and they have to market them to somebody and find some early adopters. So I guess we have to decide if we're if we're a building owner if we're going to take that additional risk that goes into adopting some of these earlier innovations that are earlier in the life cycle. Maybe there's a lot of benefit for us if we're not terribly risk averse and willing to accept some of that that could work out very well for us. If we have, you know, a mission critical facility and we need to, we can't take those kinds of risks. Maybe it makes sense for the the version two or version three, but not coming from a point where we're just not going to, you know, ever change or accept the change. is just not realistic. We need to be taking advantage of things where they exist. And, and it's going to take some time to understand what the best choices are. So we're going to need to look around in the industry and look at different sources and, and try to understand, you know, what makes sense and what doesn't. Yeah. One more comment here. And so I've, my, you know, both manufacturing and uh, building systems and, and engineering. So I get what you're saying. And for me, and I don't know about you, Adam, but there seems to be like a tension between sales and marketing and engineering. So you, you get sales and marketing, right? And this is what happens, right? This is what happens, right? So brand X comes out with a new feature, right? Starts to take the world by storm because they got a great marketing budget. And then brand Y goes to their next sales meeting and says, well, brand X has this feature. We need to put it in our system, but that's not good enough. We have to up them, right? So we have to have another. So you get this feature creep going on, right? And then, and it's the feature creeps that oftentimes end up, you know, causing a bunch of grief for guys like me that were in the field, you know, dealing with day-to-day building stuff. So I get that there has to be change. Sometimes I see change at the expense of the owners, and I struggle with that for sure. So I don't know you, Adam, but it's yeah, it's it's an arms race, right? So it's it's tough being to throw some sympathy their way. It's tough being Johnson's Honeywell, Danfoss, or Siemens, yeah. right? Because yeah. there's an arms race going on in terms of technology. Yeah, right. Yet you've got to keep all your legacy customers on board. Then you've got to deal with the skills issues that come with that, right? So one of the ways Andy might have asked your question before, yeah. The answer would have been, yeah, I'm the guy who can fix all your shit. Hire me. <laughs> Give me 200 grand a year. I'm your, I'm your boy. Yeah, I'm your guy. Right? I'm your guy. Absolutely. Right? Sure. Sure. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Right. So, Job security, right? So speaking as a property developer, my frustration on property developers' frustrations with these big houses is it's, they're so proprietary and it's a lock-in, right? You know, so all, yeah. all property developers at heart are like Prince Joffrey from Game of Thrones, right? Kill everyone. I rule. That's just how they are, right? Donald Trump, 
perfect yeah. example, right? His negotiating tactic is punch you in the face first before we even talk about anything, right? That's the property sure. way, right? So, Boom, what'd you say your name was? Yeah, exactly. I mean, I see him in action and I see things I've been looking at for the last 38 years, but to people outside our business, this is not normal, right? Right. <laughs> so, but, so it is hard being them, right? So the proprietary nature is the big thing that developers and people procure large buildings right against, right? Because you're locked in. If I, a spec would say, give me a system, right? And then it could be Honeywell, Johnson's or whatever. And then someone's going to come in. But then as the owner of, if I'm a university and I'm with that building for 30 years, I'm with Honeywell for 30 years. It's almost like getting married, right? Mm -hmm. And then, you know, oh, I need a new three-way valve. That'll be $10,000, sir. <laughs> and and fairies will come and fit it for you in gold shoes. And if you don't like it, you can go and f yourself, right? Yeah, right. <laughs> and that's the problem. So yeah. one of the ways the UK deal with this is they have what's called systems houses. They try and break the break. You have these independent controls firms who sell multitude of systems, and then they sure. have the role. But in North America, because of the scale of of the country and the market, that hasn't really happened. And the market today is moving towards consolidation and big firms. You see this in A&E firms. You see this in construction firms. The risks are so goddamn big now, right? So I think the days of small firms are going. Now, Johnson's, we're going to get, let's get off the Johnson's train, but one more thing to say on that. Johnson's are interesting, right? Because they are perpetually reinventing themselves. And I see them at the moment vertically integrating. They're buying commissioning firms. They're buying engineering firms. They're buying software firms. And they, they're vertically integrating their offering, right? They're turning themselves into a, like a, a Jones Lang or a CBRE where they're going to say to, I don't know, Harvard or a big property developer, we can do everything for you in that building. We can design it, maintain it, build it, run it, analyze it, retrofit it, everything, right? So, Johnson's are interesting, and I think what Johnson's are doing is what everyone's going to do. They're all going to virtually integrate. You're going to wind up with these massive firms. Now, to work in these massive firms is another thing, right? If you're, I think if you're entrepreneurial or you want to be very customer-focused, it's very hard to work in a big firm like that, right? Yeah, absolutely. So tell us why you left the very secure and warm environment of Johnson's, right? <laughs> Which must have been just like getting milk every time you wanted it, right? Just hit the bottle, out it comes. And then <laughs> you you put everything on the line <laughs> and started a new firm. You know, so yeah. for me, if you're starting a new firm, you're solving a problem that needs to be solved or there's an itch that needs to be scratched or there's a client who's begging you to do something. How did that all happen? I mean, at, at a basic I don't know if primal is the right word, but at a basic level, like I've always had a, a desire to kind of do my own thing. Right. So the the whole cog in the big machine idea, it, it was great to learn the industry and to be exposed to, to different things, but you don't have a lot of control uh, over your own destiny. You don't have, you know, you're not taking any equity in the in the time you're investing. So I, I've always just had a, an innate desire to go out and, and sort of create something and build something on my own. Whether that opportunity was always there or not is is, is a question. You know, in the last few years, I, I kind of saw a need and I had the ability and the skills and just the timing and everything lined up to a large extent for me to, to go out and actually start Blue Rhythms. So, and I was at a point in, in my life, in my career where that was that was possible. So it's just, um, you could say one of the, one of those situations where the, the stars had to align a little bit, but at a certain point, you do have to step off the, the gravy train, so to speak. 
and just take a chance and make things happen. So were you working in commissioning at Johnson's? Is that where the link came from? I wasn't working as a, as a commissioning agent per se myself, but I was doing a lot of, like I said, mission critical projects where there was a, a large commissioning effort as part of the, the project. And because we were a, um, you know, one of the, the good locations, let's say we, we did a good job. We worked hand in hand with the, with the commissioning firms and the rest of the contracting team. So I spent a lot of time during the commissioning phase of a, of a project, understanding it and just working alongside of, of those folks rather than, you know, outside of the process or, you know, some other way. Yeah, it's, it's interesting because the problem with commissioning is it's very hard to commodify. It's not hard to commoditize. It's hard to, everyone talks about the commissioning process. And I've just written a blog called Process is a, is a Prophylactic. It's just a condom, right? It just means, I'll tell you who says, I followed the process, everybody who got to the end of a process and didn't get the result they wanted, right? That's the first words out of their mouth, but I followed the process. Sure. So life's about outcomes, not process. So you always, yeah. and this is one of my beasts with ASHRAE, right? They, the definition of commission in ASHRAE is it's a quality-focused process, blah, blah, blah. It's way too long, right? I fall asleep halfway to saying it. But the point is this, it doesn't talk about an outcome. It talks about, well, if you do all this, then surely everything's good, right? Wee, whoopie do. And it's not like that. So commissioning is hard to fit into a process because every building is designed differently. All systems are different. It looks the same, but deep down it's different, right? Different equipment, different systems, different tests to be done. So putting that into a process is hard. And one of the problems with commission is it's very paper intensive, right? So you, you go to a building, there's all these different things. You have to write these functional performance tests. You have to document it. You have to document what you witness and test. So just, you wind up with this blizzard of paper, right? And you right. wind up with a lot of double and triple handling. And if then people pass through the job and it gets handed off to everyone, it's like a game of musical chairs, a poor guy holding all that stuff at the end going, what happened? <laughs> but I followed the process. <laughs> <laughs> So anyway, this is why I'm a lunatic and not employable. But the <laughs> point is this. I think commissioning software is hard to do because you're trying to be everything to every man, right? And every job and every system and every piece of equipment. So you wind up with a library or trying to produce a library, I guess, right? So you've been working at Johnson's. You've seen the chaos that is commissioning, right? You've seen people following the process, airmarks. But how does software help there? It can help in a lot of ways. So like you said, the, the process is just so documentation heavy that you can almost get lost in just the paperwork yeah. alone. So if, you, if you're able to automate as much of that as, as possible, you can focus more on the things that really matter, which is the actual substance of, of the effort. You're, you're working with the design team. You're working with the owner. You're, you're the bridge between the design and um, the actual implementation, and then you're you're going through the testing process, and you're actually focusing on doing a quality job with the testing process. And you're working with the contractors, and you're able to make it a you know a collaborative effort. So the the commissioning software can essentially digitize all of that documentation, bring it all into a, a centralized place where everybody's got access to it. We don't have to worry about things like who's got the latest version of some spreadsheet or some checklist or some other document <laughs> who's got the latest issues log. It's always yeah. there that where everybody can see it at any point in time, as soon as somebody makes an update, everybody else can see that update. And then 
as far as the commissioning firms themselves, when you get to the end of that process, somebody has to compile all of this documentation and make a report. And maybe not even just at the end, maybe every month or you know, some yeah. period throughout the project. So a big part of it is also automating that report generation process where you can set up a report and click a few buttons and have it actually build build something that you can then turn over to the, the project team and your clients. Yeah, that's interesting. So do you have any, so basically one of the missions is to reduce paperwork flow, right? And duplication of paperwork, I guess. That's definitely a big part. Yep. Have you had any feedback from clients on how that's going? Yeah. I mean, people, our, our customers have a lot of success in, 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 in cutting down on the amount of time that they're spending on these administrative tasks. The report building tools are, are huge for them when they're needing to you know, generate progress reports on a, some periodic basis, or especially at the end, when it comes to the final report and cut down and cut out a huge amount of time that just goes into sifting through emails and file folders and different versions of forms and pictures and, and file attachments and trying to pull all this stuff together into one place. You don't have to do that when you're using a commissioning software platform because it's all already there and the software can automatically go and grab all that stuff for you and put it together. So when you say it automatically or grabs all that stuff and puts that together, so so again, putting on my building owner hat, mm-hmm. um, let's just say I've got you know brand X control systems in my buildings. How do you interface with my existing control platform? Tell us about that. The interface to the control systems isn't something that the commissioning software or the process management software systems really have in place right now. There are commissioning platforms that do some of that interface, but those are generally generally referred to more as the continuous commissioning software. And that's that's solving a bit of a, a different problem than, than what we're doing. So we're focused more on the, the process of the commissioning itself rather than the, the continuous monitoring or the continuous commissioning where we're actually extracting data, so to speak, from the, the control system. All right. So if I've got flow sensors, pressure sensors, BTU meters, variable speed drives, power management systems, you're pulling that information into your software or no, us, no. Okay. That's, that's not the problem we're, we're focused on All right. um, at this point. So we're, we're working more towards the, the automation of the, the process of commissioning, starting from the design phase where the commissioning firm gets involved. They're, they're helping to guide the design process, developing the OPR and we're documenting all this along the way. So it's a bit like a document management system, but it's not that, right? It's that and the fact that it's aimed specifically at reducing time and paperwork on the commissioning process, for want of a better word. I've got to get a better word than that. I hate that word. But yes, everyone uses it, so you've got to use it, right? <laughs> <laughs> because if you can minimize double and triple handling, get the mm-hmm. paperwork down to a minimum, what do you do? You focus on the engineering, right? Which is really what commissioning is about. So this is why I say commission isn't a process, it's about outcomes. It's a process yeah. is a journey, right? And if you do all the steps in the right order, you should get an outcome, but it's not guaranteed, right? So the thing to do is automate the process and optimize it as much as possible. And the perfect example of that is an F1 Formula Racing car tire change. 1.63 seconds, they can change four tires and get that guy back out on the road, right? That's right. So that is the ultimate expression of process management. They have like refined, 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 refined to the point where that in out, gone, right? 
Everyone knows what they're doing. Now, I'm not saying uh, double work installation or, or building service installation should be like that, but for God's sake, it hasn't really moved on in 100 years, right? How hard is it to sort of get the installation process automated, get the testing process automated, get the paperwork process automated? I mean, the construction industry is so resistant to development like that, right? I just don't understand why. I, I think it's I've come down to the conclusion it's just there's so much entrenched do what you've always done, get what you've always got. Everyone's happy with that. Everyone's in a circle jerk, right? <laughs> <You know? laughs> yeah, it is. It has been a problem. I think it's going to change. And once it starts to change, then it's going to go. Because as soon as as soon as soon one big player in the industry starts doing it and they're able to figure out what works, they're going to be that much more competitive and everybody else is going to have to do it. So we're seeing it slowly start to change. People are bringing a lot of the process and other tools in the in different stages of the construction project into cloud-based tools and stuff. And it is happening, but you're right. It's incredibly slow compared to almost every other industry out there. <laughs> yeah. Uh, yeah. Yeah, yeah. Well, that's the, that's the construction business as a, as a general rule. It's so antiquated, right? And so stuck in its status quo ways that, you know, it's, it's incredibly frustrating at times. I, uh, before we go on, I have a question for Adam. How many seconds to, to change those tires? 1.6? 1. 1. When you... When, when you were a rebel over in England, when you were out stealing four tires off a car at night, how many seconds did it take you? A, long, a lot longer than that. And I had to find the bricks to put the car up on. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry, I digress. A little side no, no, no. There. no sorry. <laughs> yeah, I have a pass, it's fair to say. <laughs> but the, yeah. the lack of process is the lack of refinement on things. So I, I think... And is onto something because what you're going to wind up with the market at the moment, you're getting these entrepreneurial firms like Blue Ribbon coming up who are solving these like problems, but they're sort of in a they're in the bucket, and then there's someone doing like the continuous commissioning software. You're right. At some point in the future, be it five, ten, fifteen years from now, someone's going to come along and stitch all that together and provide this sort of like end-to-end solution in terms of software, but and in terms of engineering and manufacturing process management. Because let's face it, a building is a manufactured product, right? So why can't it be automated or prefabricated? So there's a bit of a movement going on in the States at the moment towards prefabrication, right? It's mostly out on the West Coast and it's mostly aimed at residential at the moment, but even Amazon is starting to get in on this thing. And I think it'll be people like Amazon who are going to come in, you're going to get these firms who are going to like prefabricate homes and small offices. Amazon are going to put their technology in it. She can go, Hey, who's, who's not serious? I don't know who Amazon use. Hey, Jeff, stop doing dick pics. Turn the kettle on, you know. <laughs> but you know that that's that confluence of technology meeting prefabrication, meeting software solutions. That's where the industry is going to change. Yeah, yeah, I, I actually agree with that. And as somebody who's kind of in the trenches in the software development and design world right now, I can say that the way you described stitching the different solutions together is exactly the way things are moving. So rather than having, you know, a big company that does kind of like the way Microsoft used to work, where you have one big monolithic system that tries to do, you know, everything that a firm or a, or a process or a project might need, you're going to have best in class, smaller, specialized solutions that you're able to easily stitch together because of open web, open standard yeah. protocols where these systems can easily talk to each other. 
So that's really the way that the industry is moving. And that's what that's the way we're positioning ourselves. And we're going to open up Blue Rhythm and allow it to talk to Procore and Bluebeam and yeah. Uforma and all these other and have all these partnerships and integrations in place where those things will be possible. Actually, yeah, just to give a shout out to Bluebeam, I've used Bluebeam. I think it's really cool because it's my problem with Revit and Autodesk and BIM is you need to be freaking Merlin the Wizard to use it, right? Or you've got to spend sure. five years of your life at learning it. Sure. So, and it's super expensive and it's that way for a reason, I guess. But my problem with that is, you know, people go, oh, BIM's going to change everything. Only when the CEO and, a, and an apprentice can use it easily and it right. costs $50 a month, right? <laughs> not, right? Not what it costs, right? So, yeah. you know, all you dream guys dream about this BIM solution. You're not, you're, you're smoking the wrong weed. You really are. Totally. <laughs> you totally are. I, just on echo on that one, Adam, you know, like, again, people don't, re- particularly people in the architectural engineering world don't understand that most, well, the majority of buildings in North America are under 20,000 square feet. Yes. You, they can't even afford to hire professionals. You never mind about hiring architectural or engineering firms to use BIM tools. Like that just isn't going to happen. You know, so the market for that software is very limited, Oh, you know, and there's definitely demand for it. But the reality is, the day-to-day grunt construction on this continent is small buildings. It's not big stuff. Yep. And the BIM right. world, until it gets down to a low-cost, simple solution that every you know, computer jockey that with an engineering degree can use it, it ain't going to happen. Yeah, I couldn't agree more with that. And this is, again, going back to the Blue River model, which is like the small software house that's that could, right? It, you're solving a problem and that. You look at another problem, you solve that, you stitch it on, you solve that, stitch it on, right? So it's it's like Saeed Alaba was saying when he was on the podcast, change actually in the environment and sustainability and in the construction industry is coming up from the bottom. It's not coming down from the top, right? right. And that change is coming up from the bottom in the form of innovation. For software is the classic example of that, right? And the tying together of software and physical solutions, that's where the leap to hyperspace is going to be made when it happens, right? So on software solutions, and this is one of the frustrations I've had with a software business in the past, I think it's awesome. I can use it. I'm awesome, obviously. And then you go on site and... <laughs> Adam's on a roll today. <laughs> yeah. Circle yeah. jerks and... Uh, yeah, yeah. Isn't it stealing car tires? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I apologize. But you go on site and then there's a, uh, there's a 35-year-old uh, steam fitter there who thinks the fax machine is cutting edge technology. What do you do with that? <laughs> yeah. Yeah, that's a good question. <laughs> yeah, I mean, that's a challenge. And it really comes down to just making it really simple for folks. I mean, that's what we've we found. You, you just, you got to get it down to the point where you can teach people to do two or three different steps. And that, then that's all they got to do. So yeah. if we're digitizing checklists that we're expecting contractors to fill out, it's got to be, you know, easier than filling it out on paper almost where you got, you can tell them step one, step two, step three, and that's it. You don't have yeah. to do anything else. You don't have to sit through a class and learn this all day. You just get on and, and it's and it's very straightforward. And once you get beyond that, expecting, you know, mass adoption for the from the entire construction team it gets a little unrealistic. Yeah, Adam, I mean you but you're bringing up a good point and, and, and you've you've answered it to some degree. Adam and I met at a course and we were talking about valve authority, Robert Pettijon, right? So on one hand, so your your comment about, you know, the the guys on the job site that aren't the technical, aren't the savvy guys is one thing, but we still have an entire industry that still can't get their head around selecting valves properly. 
you know, some, you can throw all the, the software that you want on it, but there's still fundamental things that need to go into a building that still people can't get their head around. And that includes enclosure design. So, I mean, we're talking about mechanical electrical systems, but still we have even problems with building enclosures, right? Uh, to your point, I mean, take valve authority and sizing it, right? So you go to Johnson's controller, say two-inch pipe, two-inch control valve, right? Boom, done. <laughs> that, by the that's way, everyone listening, that is the engineering standard today everywhere in the world. <laughs> yeah, and, that, and that's how we know it's wrong. When and that's how I know it's site, wrong. Yeah, Exactly. You know? And if you go to a job site and you see a balancing valve or a control valve is the same size as the line size, you know someone has not done yeah. the math. Oh, when I see that, my nose goes up. My, I smell a problem, right? <laughs> the Edifice Complex will continue in just a moment. If you're enjoying this podcast, we need your help. We're not asking for money, just a minute of your time. Our goal is to make the Edifice Complex podcast as relevant, educational, and useful as possible. By having good ratings, we can reach the widest audience. Therefore, our request is two small things. If you haven't already, leave us a review and rating on iTunes. And subscribe to the Edifice Complex on YouTube, even if you normally only listen to the audio version. These two things will help us immensely. Also, if you would like Robert or Adam to speak, teach, or consult on your project or business, please email admin at edificecomplexpodcast.com. Thanks for your time, and now, back to the show. See, I think the future is, and this is probably the space you're in, but you not sort of don't realize it is, is combining the software, like commissioning software, with some tools and educational tools with it, right? So when you're coming up to dealing with valves and, and hydronic systems, there's a tool, there's a module that says, you know, these are the formulas, what size have you got? You plug it in. So, for instance, if I was filling in a checklist, is there a two-inch control valve there? Yes. What would be the valve authority on that with that pipe? You know, if you had a bit of information, you could, with a couple of clicks, do a rule of thumb authority check there, right? Sure. That would be a great commissioning tool because – the value in commissioning is finding things early, right? Commissioning, I always tell people, commissioning starts in design phase. And what I mean by that, we don't all sit around and have great meetings. You know, you're doing, you're looking at the drawings and the game is, how many problems can I find now that I can fix for zero than finding them in construction where I have to start writing physical instructions and paying money, right? So a commissioning software tool and the, the evolution of that, I think, is... It handles the paperwork and then it evolves into having modules with it that can provide rule of thumb checks like for duct size, fan size, authority on valves, valve size, you know. And like if I was looking, I was reviewing a hydronic system, I could just with a button pull up some pipe sizing charts, right? And sure. just do a spot check on a on a size. I mean, just Again, the amount of times I see incorrect pipe sizing blows my goddamn mind. You know, how hard yeah. can that be? <laughs> yeah. Well, and it's the same. But Adam, you, so, okay, Adam, so we're giving you some ideas here, right? So, yeah. right, so there's, you know, if I'm in the, so I'm I'm buying in the software tool, it's a commissioning software tool, and I can use it on the upfront part of the design process. One of the things that, like, again, going back to pipe sizing, but it can also have, you know, as I'd say, on a, on a coil, on an air handler, Right. You click on the coil on a module that says, have you considered, you know, the ramifications of a larger delta T and the reduced temperature back to the boiler and the increased efficiency? Just a simple question, getting people to optimize their designs, right? Yeah. I mean, most, most engineers, 
they look at, they go to the handbooks and it's like, okay, 20 degree delta T and then that's the coil from the manufacturer. And so it goes in, right? And they lose an opportunity to optimize the efficiency of the boiler. Or in this case, if you want a higher delta T, a chiller, right? So that one question, getting them to think about optimization on coil sizing, yeah, right? And then, so, and so if that gets considered, they change the delta T, goes into the process, the commissioning process, you can validate it, right? Supply yeah. return, right? That's right. Because, you know, it's, I like the Ronald Reagan saying, you know, trust, but verify. This is, this yeah. is, this should yeah. be the commissioning definition. Three words, trust, but verify. <laughs> totally. I trust the design yeah. and construction team to do their job, but I'm going to verify that. Thank you very much. Right. Yeah. And if you're yeah. wrong, you know, I have lawyers. <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> and I have sharp teeth. And that's, you know, why yeah. does commissioning exist? There's no commissioning engineers for cars or laptops. There's a good reason for that. Them things actually work properly. <laughs> right? Yeah. So going back to the software, this is, again, one of my pet things. People confuse lots of paperwork during commissioning for actual commissioning, right? So one of the beauty of software is it takes that illusion away. And it takes that burden away, right? So one of the great things about commissioning software is you reduce paper handling, you reduce paper volume, you streamline and fast track a nuisance job, which is producing paperwork. And it lets you focus on what's important, the engineering and testing, right? And that's really, I think, the killer, the killer unique selling point, if you want, right, is it removes the burden of paperwork and producing stuff, reports, you know, so they get automatically generated. People can log in and see what they want to see. And it's probably only two or three people on any job who want to really see it. And then you can focus as a commissioning provider on doing the actual work. And, you know, I if I was selling your software, that's how I'd sell it, right? Sure. Yeah, I mean, that that's a huge part of it, definitely. And then the ability to have everybody use it as a communication platform too, it also works towards that end as well. You know, it cuts down on the amount of time we're sifting through emails and phone calls when we've got all the, the history and the conversations saved right in the software. So you have a punch list yeah. module with it as well? Yep. Yeah, so yeah, yes, we do. I, I did a job. So back back in the day when I was a property developer, we did one of the, we used one of the early versions of uh, software collaboration tools for the project. So it's called A-Sites at the time. I don't know what it evolved into. But what that meant was, so as property development manager, I had to say to the design and construction team, there is no paper here. You, if you issue an RFI, you have to do it online. If you respond to an RFI, you have to do it online. And everyone was like, oh, jolly good. So we had the, the, you know, we had the training session. Everyone was hugging, <laughs> convincing everyone we're geniuses. <laughs> but I tell you, man, four months in, people hated that thing because if you did not respond in the five-day time to an RFI, me as the development manager got an email saying, do you know Fred from a- a- ABC Architects hasn't done his, cleared his RFIs? So the accountability that visibility brought to that team was crazy. So it went from hugging at the beginning to hating <laughs> it to when people Shut realized down. it wasn't going away, they upped their game. So it brought a level of compliance in terms of timeliness and tidiness to the work that just wasn't there before. Sure. And that's, again, that's, that's the advantage of, uh, of commissioning software. You get that. You get the, the visibility on commissioning issues. That's the powerful thing. On every job I do, the commissioning issues log that I insist on sending everyone from the president down, <laughs> right? And, I, and my view is, look, I'm not pointing fingers here. This is the issue. We need to decide how we're going to 
solve it and then we're going to document how we solve it as a lesson learned and everyone's going to move on and it's not going to be a blame game and we're not going to talk about money. But, you know, just the fact that you put that out there and people hate it, right? So visibility and transparency, man, that is the other key benefit of software, I believe. Yeah, absolutely. That's also a big piece of it. Just the easy access, the centralization of all the information. Everybody can see it. And there's no question about, you know, who's got what left to, to do. It's all right there. Yeah, that's cool. I guess now, in terms of reducing parasitic costs on a project, you haven't got a bunch of engineers, high-priced engineers, you know, chasing literature down, right? I mean, if it's yeah. all in the, right? I mean, that was one of the things that used to frustrate us in our engineering department is I would watch our guys have to do stuff. I'm paying them to do engineering work. Right, but they're doing administrative stuff, right? Yeah. And if you can re- if you can reduce the amount of administrative stuff that an engineer is doing, then in terms of profitability in the business, it goes up. Yeah, no one be- accounts for the parasitic loss of administrative costs, right? That's right. Right, yeah. we're yeah, gonna so- do it because we're good. You know, you're a good client, and we want to keep you. And you know, and our competitors they do crappy work, but we're not gonna do that. We're gonna throw it in for free. <laughs> I always love that one. Well, we're gonna we're gonna do it because we're you know we're we're knights in shining armor, until the till the financial statements come out, right? And you start looking at hours on a job versus the profit that was accounted for at the beginning, right? Absolutely, yeah, absolutely, yeah. A lot of truth to that. It'd be interesting as you know over over a period of time, you probably need a three or four or five year period of this to accumulate some statistics on like time saved or you know. Paper saved. How many trees have you literally saved from being cut down? That would, that would be so. That'd be a great infographic. But you need a a body of knowledge behind that, right? You need time to curate that information, I guess. Yeah, yeah. We definitely get a lot of that feedback, but it's somewhat subjective at this point. People know that they're saving time, but they're not tracking it. And, and we haven't been doing any formal studies at this point, but it's definitely interesting to to measure. Okay, so look, we're coming up on forty minutes here, so we try and keep into an hour. We have some, we're going to wrap up in a minute. We have some rapid fire questions as well. We ask people. So you will be asked a few rapid fire questions. There are no right or wrong answers. And we will see where you sit on the leaderboard at the end. <laughs> no, there's no, <laughs> no, there's right. no ranking. But before, before we wrap up, anything um, we'll put in the show notes, connections to your website, to your Twitter feed, just to say, you know, for me as a commissioning practitioner, Paperwork is the absolute is an absolute nightmare. It is a waste of time. It's a burden. It's an overhead, and these are all things paperwork takes away from actual engineering work, which is yep. what you're actually paid to do. So, for God's sake, everyone, go to Software Root, optimize what you're doing, please. Yeah. Fax machines are no longer trendy. FYI. <laughs> <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> Andrew, we're going to go on to some questions here. Right, rapid question. What advice would you give to a young engineer just graduating and coming into our business? I would say to find something that you're interested in, that you've got some passion in, study that, learn it, gain some specialization, but also keep your mind open and eyes open to other other areas around that. Look at the trends of the industry. Try to chart out a path and something to follow early on. Good, good advice. Good advice, yeah. And dealing with conflict. Conflict, personality conflicts, project conflicts. How do you handle it? What would you recommend a young engineer having to face his first war? <laughs> <laughs> That's Tight always intimidating going into your first project meeting with a bunch of crusty construction managers ready to yell down your throat. 
but I would say just keep a cool head and always work towards, always work towards resolution. Keep the, keep the client's best interest in mind. That's what we're working towards. Even if somebody's being a, you know, not working towards that end or they're just trying to win an argument, keep that as your focus and, and you'll come out all right. Yeah, I, I would add to that, be humble because you will be humbled. <laughs> There's no question about that. <laughs> yeah, there is a message right there for any yeah. of the, the uh, engineers that come out of school that have a chip on their shoulder, cocky, arrogant, maybe even a slight narcissistic, <laughs> that you will be quickly put in your place if you bring that into into a meeting, that's for sure. Yeah, yeah. Wayne's right. like going to a 300-pound pipe field. He's putting the pipe in the wrong way around. <laughs> See how that goes. <laughs> Awesome. So I just had a thought while we were here, and this is a big question, so feel free to punt it. We might get you back on to talk about this. What about blockchain in terms of how that might apply to construction? Have you any thoughts on that? You know, honestly, I I don't. That is, it's an interesting topic to me and somewhat from a political standpoint, but we don't need to get into that right now. I'm going to go ahead and punt on that for now, I guess. That's that's fair enough. I'm, uh, I'm actually personally very interested in how this might apply because sure. uh, I think there are some benefits and I think software firms, it will probably be a niche software firm that makes the use case for it in our business, I think. Now I've got, I don't know, I'm still early in my early thinking on it, but maybe commissioning could be why. We have to talk about that offline maybe, but uh, interesting. I don't blame you for punting that. That was a bit of an unfair question, but it just popped into my head and because I'm a squirrel, I have to say what pops in my head. Yeah, that's that's uh, that's very interesting. Though I hadn't thought about it in, in the context of construction before. Yeah. Well, cool. we've had guests on in the past, and you can go back into the, for those that are listening, go back into the, the previous uh, episodes and listen to those interviews. They're actually quite good, and I certainly opened my eyes to the application of the technology. I'm a bit of a cynic, when it, as you can tell, when it comes to technology, but <laughs> I had my eyes opened to blockchain and the Internet of Things and how that can actually. There's an actual role for it in the world of architecture and, and mm. building systems, for sure. Sure. Yeah. Okay, man. So I think that's it. So thank you for coming on. And we will post this up and we'll see if we can get people excited about commissioning software. <laughs> that's awesome. Excellent, guys. Well, I appreciate you having me. This has been a lot of fun. It's my first podcast interview and I really appreciate the opportunity. Well, you didn't even break a sweat. For those that are online, we actually have a visual. He didn't even break a sweat. It, there was nothing. He handled it really cool. So. Like a pro. We'll put you <laughs> like on for some friends next. <laughs> <laughs> Excellent. Well, thanks, guys. All right. So, Adam, what did you think of that presentation or uh, interview? I thought that was great, actually. Yeah. It, the whole software thing fascinates me because I think the, the construction software industry is the Wild West at the moment. There's so many apps yeah. and opportunities to fix inefficiencies and niggly things. It's a great time to be a software developer in construction industry. Ten yeah. years from now, probably not, but right now it is. And, you know, he's Andrew's doing what all good entrepreneurs are doing. They're seeing a problem and they're trying to fix it, right? Yeah, what I, he said a few things that I really like to hear out of someone that's getting started in that business, and that was to make sure that it's simple enough that the people that are using it can use it. You know, to get keep the frustration out of it because I, you know, and I know that using software stuff can can just drive you crazy, and so if it's intuitive, if it requires very little or no training then maybe he's going to have a winner there, you know? And, of course, we like winners on yeah. our podcast. We Absolutely. have nothing but winners on our podcast, so that's why we had him on because we think he's a winner, and we wish him well with it. I, You know, I think he's got – he might have something there. 
Yeah, I mean, I just going during an interview, I could, all through my mind, I was thinking, oh, he could add that on to this. He could do this module yeah. and that module. You know, there's so many ways that he can develop that and iterate and add value, add value, add value. Right. So, yeah. you know, and that's what sells, right? Value yeah. sells. I can imagine myself as a lead engineer on a project where we've got the software on our hardware and we're using it as a guidance tool, you yes. know, the checklist, the handling all of the documentation, stuff that still might be available in hard copy that you can digitize it, get it yeah. into, the, into the building's catalog. I can see a lot of benefit in that and managing it all. And then ultimately then moving and of course, you're working with it in parallel with your calculations, right? So, yeah. you know, you're doing a load calculation, you're turning it into a flow rate, you're, then you're looking at velocities and pressures, and then you're going to be doing head loss calculations, and you're going to pick a control valve, right? Well, all of that guidance can be in the commissioning software that he's developing. And then when you go to go pick that control valve and the motor, the actuator, and the whole output, input stuff, the IO, his tool manages all of that. It's kind of, you know, because, you know, I mean, in the past when we didn't have these tools, trying to keep track of all that stuff was a huge, huge task. And the bigger the building, the more control points, the more complicated it got, the more data, the more the more information you had to manage, right? Yep. This is the thing. We, we're in a great period of high technology at the moment, right? But with that comes yeah. complexity. Yeah. And it, the bandwidth of how much your brain can chew on at any time. You know, there's a limit to that. Yeah. You know, you know, if you're an engineer in the 60s, the guy who designed my school, right, he selected the boiler, there was some single glazing windows, there was a light that went on and off, there was a radiator in the room. That was it. So right. you could be a building services engineer there and expect to be current, right? Right. Today's building services engineer has got to be a control specialist, a fire alarm specialist. He's got to be a, he's got to understand lighting, lighting, fenestration, you know, mechanical yeah. engineer, electrical engineer. He's got to have an understanding of all that. And she, sorry guys. And yeah. you've got to be able to synthesize that and put that together, right? Because it's all very well understood. You've got to understand how it works together, right? So yeah. the complexity factor is getting higher. Add on to that multiple software tools, right? So they're, the market is crying out for simplification whilst not losing the high technology outcome or the high technology yeah. input, right? Right. That's the sweet spot. I mean, you know, this is how Apple did it, right? You think about Apple. They took, do you remember the early days of DOS and Windows 3.1, oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. right? I mean, yeah. it was just a goddamn nightmare to get anything working, right? Yeah. And then along comes Steve Jobs and makes it easy. Yeah. Apple were paid handsomely for that, right? Yeah. I've just tried. I've just gone back to a Surface Windows laptop because I'm working on some projects with SharePoint. My God, setting up Microsoft Outlook took me a day to get all my accounts on it and synced. It oh was like, you know. Yeah. So I'm an Apple fanboy straight up, but I just have to use Windows now and again, right? So I've committed to being dual language. But my God, just reminded me what a service Apple did to everyone by making it easy to set something up. Yeah. Anyway, uh, and that, and that's and that's going to be the challenge, I think, for all of these companies. And Andy, of course, is not going to be is no different. And that is, is that making it easy to stitch together. You guys talked about you know stitching together software tools, yeah. and I liked I liked his comment. Uh, well, both of you guys are making it in terms of you know one big the comparison between one big monolithic software package, which is clunky, and you know can I mean you you make one mistake in it or. Even from you know loading the software up, if you haven't got the right hardware, it just becomes comp. It just becomes a you know it's a pain. But 
if the tool that he's creating can stitch together small, best-class software that exists, I really like that that philosophy. Yeah, that's yeah. that's uh, that's, that's going to be interesting to see how this space develops over the years. It really is. Yeah. Okay, man. Well, I think that was a that was a good one. I'm, I'm fascinated by software. I've got so many ideas firing in my head at the moment for software. It's crazy. I think I need yeah. to go and lie down. <laughs> <laughs> I have one. I have one last comment, and you made it. And I I always love listening to you because you come up with these great statements. And one of them had to do with the arms race. Yeah. The manufacturers in many industries, but particularly in the world of building construction, are in an arms race, and through that. You know, marketing and product development are given a mandate to grow revenues and profits, right? And so they push this stuff down into the industry, down the chain of command, and people end up with these products in their buildings. And it's a race to get products into buildings, right? Because it's once you get it into a building, then you have a pretty good chance of being able to service that building for the life of that building. Yeah, I mean, the sales strategy for any big firm like Johnson's, Honeywell, Siemens, Danforce is Get in, yeah. right? Go in at cost or sub-cost and you got on for 25 years. Yeah. But I think in this arms race, these companies lose sight of what it's like to be the person operating the building and having to keep Absolutely. up with this technology. And this, I think these big controls firms are like the Windows pre-Apple's dominance, right? Yeah. They're just yeah. lording it over everyone and they're not thinking about the user experience. Absolutely. One of these firms is going to break ranks and look at it the other way. That yeah. would be a game changer. So yeah. if, if Honeywell, Johnson's, Siemens or Danfoss want to hire Robert and I, we will help you with that because we have some experience <laughs> of what it's like to deal with your products. <laughs> yeah, totally. Yeah. <laughs> okay, man. So that was a good one. I'll, All right. Uh, see you on the next one. All right, Adam. Always a pleasure, man. You've been listening to the Edifice Complex podcast with Adam Muggleton and Robert Bean. To access show notes for this episode, visit edificecomplexpodcast.com. Also, if you would like Robert or Adam to speak, teach, or consult on your project or business, please email admin at edificecomplexpodcast.com. See you next time. Adam, it's time to thank some people who are on our side, because we're on their side. You found a new tool, software. Blue Rhythm commissioning software. Robert, I sure have. I think Blue Rhythm is what I've been looking for all these years. Building commissioning can be chaos at the best of times. Most projects I consult on really suffer from poor information management. You know, it's 2019, yet the property and construction industry seems to be firmly stuck in the 20th century paperwork world. I think people mistake emails and PDFs and Microsoft files on their servers and all the different PCs as a digital solution. In reality... It's just unorganized chaos. Do you want to streamline your commissioning process and save time and money? Do you want to go paperless and increase efficiency? Blue Rhythm is a cloud-based software solution built specifically for building commissioning professionals. Blue Rhythm digitizes your custom forms and checklists, allows collaboration across project teams, and automates reporting, leaving you to focus on what matters. Their team help you onboard the test sheets you've developed over the years. You can even send it some in paper, and they will... Digitize that and put it in the Blue Rhythm system for you. In my opinion, Blue Rhythm pays for itself in time saved on paperwork on a single project. For a demo or to start a free trial, go to bluerhythm.com. That's where rhythm is spelled R-I-T-H-M like algorithm. 
BlueRhythm.com. Tell them the Edifice Complex sent you there.